This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. December 7th, 1941. November 22nd, 1963. January 28th, 1986. September 11th, 2001. Those are dates that have, in fact, lived in infamy. The bombing of Pearl Harbor, the assassination of JFK, the Challenger explosion, and an event so defined by a single day, we simply refer to it as 9-11. An event that we remember each and every year by reliving it to some extent, telling the story, reading the list of names of those who died that day. And not just that, but, but reliving our own story of that day for those of us who were alive then, where we were, what we were doing, what we were feeling, the, the holding of our collective breath as a nation that afternoon, wondering if there was going to be another attack. And then the exhaustion we felt that evening as our bodies finally began to release the tension that we had carried throughout that day. And in much the same way, each year on Tisha B'Av, the Ninth day of the month of Ab in the Hebrew calendar, which falls at the end of our July, beginning of August, the Jewish people would remember the destruction of the temple and the devastation of the city of Jerusalem from 587 BC at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. The world as they had known it at that time having come to an end. And, and they did this by, they relived these events generation after generation through a ceremony that included the reading of five poems that make up the book Eka, the Hebrew word for how, the first word of what we know of today as the book of Lamentations. And these poems, they're believed to have been written by the prophet Jeremiah as an eyewitness to the destruction of this once great city, this center of worship. Poems that express the emotions of the people, the anger and the anxiety they felt at all the death and destruction Poems that are acrostic in nature and that they contain 22 stanzas, one for each letter of the alphabet beginning with each subsequent letter of the alphabet, providing a sense of structure to the chaos of the emotion they were feeling, offering handles for us to grab hold of to guide them through their grief. Poems that were performed by the people serving as a liturgy, a work of the people, because that's what liturgy is. It is something that is lived out together in community with others, pointing us to God, making the book of Lamentations a liturgy of lament, leading God's people in learning how to lament, learning why we lament, acknowledging our sorrow rather than suppressing it, and expressing our grief rather than skipping past it a liturgy that I pray will be formative for us as a church, helping us learn to lament through this 40-day season of Lent that leads us up to Easter, a season set aside in the church's liturgical calendar, this lived remembrance of the life of Christ for reflection, reflecting on the depth of our sin, reflecting on the brokenness of our world, and a season of repentance, repenting of our own sin, repenting of our 
own lack of concern for the suffering of others. A season that leads to a season of hope and renewal and a death that brings about life. And if we're honest, like, lament's not something we do well, is it? It's not something we do well. It's, it's not something we're familiar with. It's not something we're comfortable with. In fact, it's something we work hard to suppress and skip past, isn't it? Denying the suffering brought about by our sin rather than acknowledging it. Take, for example, we now have oftentimes a celebration of life service when a friend or family member dies rather than a funeral where we have the opportunity to grieve and mourn their death. Filling every bit of space with noise, filling every bit of time with movement, rather than creating space to sit still, allowing time to express the fullness of our emotions, to cry without apology, no need to wear a mask and look tough, to look strong. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, Prophetic Imagination, he writes that the capacity to grieve, to lament, is the most visceral announcement that things are not right. The world presses us and urges us to pretend that things are all right, that everything's fine. We're the dog and the meme in the burning building. And as long as the world can keep this illusion alive that everything's fine, there will be no real grieving. There will be no lament over the brokenness and no serious criticism, no action, no pursuit of peace or seeking of shalom. So here's the thing I want us to know on the front end of this. If the brokenness doesn't bother you, you will never bother to lament the brokenness. You will skip right past it and suppress it like it's not even there. And so we're going to begin this journey. We're going to open our liturgy of lament here in the first poem in a sermon called Crying Out to God. That is this, this first step in our liturgy, crying out to God. And, and you may have noticed, as Alvin and Jenny read, there are two speakers in this opening poem. The first is the narrator, the, the poet, describing what it is that he is seeing and what it is that he is hearing. And we're going to look at the poet's portion this morning in these first 11 verses. And the other speaker is Jerusalem, uh, the personification of this once great city, expressing what it is that she is feeling. We're going to look at her portion next week. One speaking about Jerusalem, one speaking as Jerusalem. And so this morning, we're going to see the poet begin by giving us a description of, of what he sees and what he hears as he looks out at the devastation of, of Jerusalem. And he begins his description by, by describing her fall. He, he sees her fall from greatness. And uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation uh, of the Old Testament, uh, written in about the third century BC, it, it has something that comes before our verse one. It, it actually begins saying, and it came to pass after Israel was taken captive and Jerusalem was laid to waste, that the prophet Jeremiah sat weeping. And he lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem, and he said, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. He's contrasting her, her current situation of who she is sitting all alone with who she once was, full of people, bustling with activities. I, I read this, and I think of uh, 
It's like he's describing shopping malls, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. Shopping malls, believe it or not, um, they used to be full of people. That's where you went. Like, we had to drive what felt like 800 hours to get to the closest mall in Iowa, um, but we got there eventually, and they, they were full, and, and you went to the mall, you, you bought all these things you didn't need. You, you bought cassette tapes at Sam Goody. Remember Sam Goody? Remember cassette tapes? You, you bought jeans at the Buckle? I remember we had this contest growing up where the buckle had the single most annoying people that worked there in the history of stores. And so the contest was, can you get to the back wall, touch the back wall, and get out without anybody noticing you? You went and you bought things you did not need at Spencer Gifts. You bought like 8,000 posters to plaster your wall. And then when it was all done, you went to the food court to have lunch. It was great. But now, do you remember the last time you went to a shopping mall? They're ghost towns. There's tumbleweed in the parking lot. Sometimes actual tumbleweed in the parking lot. They're not even caring for them anymore. It looks like the scene from a post-apocalyptic movie anymore. It's a ghost town. And that's what he's describing in Jerusalem. Notice here the poet, he doesn't describe Jerusalem as a city. He describes her as a woman, personifying this once great city painting a picture with what Adele Berlin describes in her commentary as a, a kaleidoscope of images. The first one we see here is that of a widow. The widow who was once great among the nations, he says, but is now alone with no one to care for her. She is vulnerable with no one to provide for her. She's a widow. He describes her as a slave who was once royalty. This former princess among the provinces now having lost her glory, her independence, her freedom. In verse two, he describes her as a betrayed lover. Jerusalem, she, she was once the most desired woman in every room that she ever entered. Every eye followed her as she walked by. Every man wanted to be near her. They wanted to be with her. But now no one will even look at her. And she's alone, weeping bitterly in the night, crying herself to sleep, tears streaming down her cheeks with no one to care for her, no one to comfort her in her grief. Everyone having turned on her, betraying her. The nations that she once aligned herself with have now become her enemies and they're out to get her. And she's left feeling ashamed. She's left feeling exposed. It's, it's front page news. Every, everyone knows. And there's no way for her to fake her way through it. There's no way to hide it, no matter how hard she tries. And if you've ever experienced a fall, regardless of why, it may have had nothing to do with you. If you've ever experienced a fall, you were laid off or let go of a job. You had someone leave you, a parent, a spouse, a significant other. You had to reset the clock back at day one with a new chip again. If you've ever felt exposed, you, you were looking forward to something, you set out to accomplish something big and you told everybody and it, it didn't go the way you had hoped, or you went to the doctor and heard that heartbeat for the first time and you told everybody you were expecting only to then lose your baby, you know that feeling of being exposed 
of everyone knowing the most personal, most intimate thing about you that you want to hide. You're suffering in public. And that can lead to a deep feeling of shame, even if you did nothing wrong. But Jerusalem, she not only felt ashamed, she felt alone. She was abandoned by everybody that was close to her. And the poet goes on, he describes her abandonment, seeing the, the emptiness of this once great city. And, and, he, and he mentions exile here, and he's not referring to those carried away into Babylon here. No, he's talking about those who fled the city. Knowing what was coming at the hands of the Babylonians, some of the people, they, 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 they got out of Dodge. They were like rats fleeing a sinking ship. They they got out ahead of the destruction and the suffering and the affliction. But what he says is those who fled, they found no resting place as they dwelled among the nations. And what happened was a few years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar, he placed a puppet king on the throne. He controlled the strings. Only eventually one of the puppet kings started to revolt a little bit, started saying some things, he started doing some things. And so Babylon attacked. And by this point, Jerusalem was left alone, no one to defend her. She was all that was left of this once great kingdom of Israel. And so she was easily overtaken by her pursuers and in, in the midst of her distress. They tore down the walls of the city after a 30-month-long siege. They burned the people's homes. They destroyed the temple. They left absolutely nothing of value. Everything was destroyed. Nothing was left untouched, leaving this empty, barren wasteland. The roads, he says, they, they mourned. The roads cried out. The priests, they groaned because no one was coming to town. No one was coming to the festival. They weren't coming back for Passover anymore. Her gates were desolate. The city was deserted. And while those left behind suffered bitterly, he says in verse five that her enemies prospered. Right? Her fall led to their rise. But notice, it, it wasn't because they were stronger. It wasn't because they were more strategic. It wasn't because they were better equipped. It was because the Lord afflicted her. God brought this grief upon her. God did this. He did this to his people. Like, why? He did it as punishment for the multitude of her transgressions, for her sin. That word transgression, it, it conveys a rebellion, a revolt, which is exactly what her sin and idolatry was, a repeated rebellion against God over the course of centuries. And like, this was no secret. The poet's not revealing something new. In fact, Jerusalem herself acknowledges this later on in the second half of the poem which I think helps reveal the purpose of not just this poem, but this whole collection of poems, and that they were not written to explain why we suffer. That is not the question it seeks to ask. They were not written to explain what causes suffering. That is not why they were written. No, they were written to show us how to respond to suffering, how to grieve the sin and suffering of our world, how to lament the brokenness, making these poems a liturgy of lament. And I think that's important for us to recognize as we make our way through these poems during the season of Lent. A season, as I mentioned before, of both reflection and repentance. 
Because there will be times when, like Jerusalem, when we will suffer the consequences of our sin. We'll suffer financial consequences, legal consequences, relational consequences. And we should grieve that sin. We should mourn our sin. We should repent of our sin. But at the same time, we won't always suffer because of something we did because of our own sin. Sometimes we will, but not always. There'll be times when we suffer as the result of someone else's sin against us. There will be times we will suffer due to the mere presence of sin and living in a broken, fallen world. Sin being this poison that has infected every aspect of creation. Nothing remains untouched, uninfected. And we recognize that about our suffering, but that's also true about the suffering of others, of other individuals, of other groups of people. And I think that too is an important reminder for us in this season because I think too often we have far too narrow a view of sin and suffering. Assuming, maybe unintentionally, unconsciously, that someone's suffering is a result of something they did, as though they did this to themselves. They had it coming. They are responsible. And you may want to push back on that. It's like, no, 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 no. I, I, I get it. Okay. I want you to ask yourself, what went through your mind the last time you saw someone sleeping on a street? What went through your mind the last time you saw someone asking for money, holding a sign at a stoplight? Every time I get off 90 to come up Arlington Heights Road, there's someone. Golf in Algonquin, every time there's someone. What goes through your mind when you heard that someone was unable to hold a job regularly? What went through your mind when you heard of someone being in need of government assistance? What goes through your mind when you think of all the people who come through to the pantry? Man, yesterday morning, we had a lot of people. And what was so fascinating was how we uh, were grateful that we had what may have been the busiest month ever, even busier than November when we gave out Thanksgiving meals. Every person without fail mourned the fact that there were so many people in need. Grateful we could meet the need mourning the fact that there was a need. But what about all those people? Does their reason for why they need diapers and clothes for their kids have any bearing on our responding to their need? Does it? The answer is no. Does their reason for coming have any bearing on if we will pray over their prayer requests? No. And I tell you, like, this whole stack got prayed over yesterday. Here's one. One person was just asking for prayer for their husband so that they could have a job to support us. It doesn't matter why he lost his job. He's, he's looking. Another, ask God to help me to return to my job and protect my family and put good people in my way and protect me and my family from bad people. Here's one's praying for her sister who just lost her husband, her sister who has four children. We don't know what led to any of that, and that doesn't impact our praying for them. But if we're honest with ourselves, maybe not all the time, but there will be times when we're quick to blame someone for their suffering, adding to their shame and making them feel even more alone in their suffering, 
rather than entering into their suffering, rather than lamenting the suffering, regardless of why. And that's what the poet does. He's not standing on the sideline. That's why I read you that opening from the Septuagint. He's not standing on the sideline. He's in it. He's a part of this. And, And he enters in and he sees her affliction, right? It says he sat weeping as he saw Jerusalem laid to waste. He was there and he saw all of her majesty depart from her. This once glorious princess, he saw her splendor stripped away. He saw her drained of beauty, her princes fleeing. And just as her glory in the days of David and Solomon, all of her precious things that were hers from the days of old, they were all brought about by the hand of God, so was her affliction. Her pain and suffering, her wandering in exile, her downfall, her shame, her her foes gloating over her, mocking her. The poet makes it clear this was all brought about by the hand of God because of her sin against God. And in verse 8, the poet goes on to use yet another image in this kaleidoscope to describe personified Jerusalem's sin and idolatry against God, that of an adulterous, unfaithful wife. Having sinned grievously against God, her loving, ever faithful husband, everyone had seen her naked. They viewed her as filthy, as unclean, and like... I wanted to soften that word, but I think it can, can I just be clear? We're not talking about an actual woman here. I think that needs to be said. We, I think we need to be careful in personification like this because it's really easy for us to twist this and apply it to an individual, isn't it? That's not what he's doing. He's doing something common in a culture that existed thousands of years ago that I think we would not dare do today. Does that make sense? I feel like we're going to need that asterisk a few times in here. One translation describes her as an object of ridicule, something you would shake your head at. And he says she was despised by all who once honored her. And now in her affliction, she joins the priests in groaning as well. And she turns her face away in shame, trying to hide, not wanting people to see the pain that is on her face. She feels naked and exposed. But then we get a flashback in verse 9. Not not back then. She didn't used to feel that way. Back then, it says she took no thought of her future. Meaning she knew what she was doing was wrong. The, The people of God, just to clarify, they knew that what they were doing was wrong, and they didn't care. They didn't care about the consequences of their sin. She was led by her desires, desires for things other than God. She didn't care. She didn't care about the impact that her sin had on herself and her future. She didn't care about the impact her sin had on others and their future. And that's the snare sin sets, isn't it? Rather than lamenting and grieving sin, it it leads us to excuse it, to embrace it. It's good. It's okay feeling, in some cases, a sense of apathy over our sin. We just don't care. We don't care what happens. I'm going to do it anyway. 
It leads to feeling a sense of arrogance, thinking that you are above it all, above the law, above the rules, because they don't apply to me. And if someone were to call me out on it, it doesn't matter. I got a way out. Or feeling a sense of, of audacity, thinking I deserve this thing I desire, even if it's wrong. Convincing yourself it's not that bad. At least I'm not doing that. I'm not like them. But eventually we're forced to face the reality of the situation that sin puts us in, of how damaging sin is. And when Jerusalem saw how terrible her fall was, the damage that her sin had caused, how it led to her not only feeling ashamed but alone, left with no one to comfort her as she suffered, finally we hear her cry out to God here in verse 9. We hear Jerusalem speak for the first time and she cries out to God, Oh Lord, behold my affliction. Right, she's pleading with God to just look, to see, to be validated, to know that this is real, this is happening. She's crying out for a comforter so she won't feel so alone because she's feeling defeated. She says, for the, the enemy has triumphed, I'm beaten. And then the poet's language takes a more violent and dark turn in verse 10 as he paints yet another image in this kaleidoscope. These are not overlapping images. These are in separate images. Painting the picture of a victim of rape in verse 10. A victim not of her own sin, but the sin of others committed against her. Violated by her enemy. Those who were forbidden from entering the temple, they, they stretched out their hands over all her precious things, it says, taking anything of value from the temple, entering into her sanctuary, the most intimate and holy place there was. And as the poet sees her fall, this widow who lost her husband, this princess who is now a slave, this betrayed lover, as he describes her abandonment, he describes her affliction, suffering because of her own sin and suffering because of the sin of others committed against her. He hears her plea. He hears her cry to God, and he also hears the plea of the people. See, after, after nearly three years of siege warfare, Babylon having surrounded the city, not allowing anything in or out, basically waiting for them to either wave the white flag or die, whichever came first. The people inside the city walls, they were left groaning in extreme hunger. They, they were starving. They were, they were searching for bread. He says, anything to eat, going so far as to trade their treasures. What do you think were their most treasured possession? Not gold and silver, but their children. They sold their own children to their enemy, selling them into slavery for food to revive their strength. Something that was not uncommon during times of extreme famine in the time, in hopes of preventing starvation, not just for themselves, but also for their children. And this selling into slavery was a prelude to the next step when they got hungry again, that of cannibalism, which we'll see in chapter two. And the poet here, he's showing how dire the situation was. 
He's showing how desperate the people were. And I think that's important for us to see. It's easy for us to look at images on the news and question, how could you ever do that? How could you ever drop your baby over a fence into another land? How could you do that? I think until we walk through someone else's shoes, it's best that we not question their motives. These were Jerusalem's own children who were groaning, and they were suffering because of her sin, and she knows this now. Leading this desperate mother filled with shame to cry out to God yet again for a second time, pleading with God to simply look. Look, oh God, and see, for I am despised. All she wants is a comforter, someone to be near, a shoulder to cry on, an attentive ear to listen to her cry. And yet, here's the thing. The poet gives absolutely no indication that God ever responded. Not here, not later on in this poem, not at any point in this book. In fact, God is silent through the entire book. He's quoted once. He never speaks. He never acts. He never responds in this book. And it makes you feel as though maybe God's not listening. Maybe God's too busy to be bothered with this. Or worse, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God's given up on her. He's abandoned her. He's rejected her. He just left her to suffer alone. I think we can relate because I think we've probably all been there, haven't we? Times when God feels so distant, you can no longer feel him. Sounds so silent, you can no longer hear him. Wondering if God's too busy to listen and too frustrated to care. God, did you, did you reach your breaking point with me? Did, it, did I run out of mulligans? Did I run out of grace? Are we all out? The tank's empty? Did, did you have enough of me, God? Did you give up on me? We think that of our own suffering, and we think that about the suffering of others. We think that about the suffering of those that are close to us, friends and family, battling cancer, struggling to make ends meet, and just trying to keep their nose above water and live to see another day, not just metaphorically, but literally. And I love how like each week we ask you to share your prayer requests with us as pastors and elders so that we can pray for you. And I know that some of you feel like you're just copying and pasting the same prayer request every week. And I gotta think at some point you're wondering what's the point? The same prayer requests for eight years. And I know that you type that prayer request pleading for God to look, to see, to hear, and at the same time asking, like, when is enough enough, God? Eight years, that's a long time. It's not just true of those that are close to us. It's true of the suffering of those that we've never met, those that we see in the news, whether it's another mass shooting that we can't make sense of, this one at a, at a Super Bowl celebration. 23 people suffering the physical wounds, having been shot or injured, and half of them children in Kansas City. It's estimated that a million people were there. And they went home traumatized and angry, suffering the emotional wounds of that day. 
and a 43-year-old mother who didn't go home to her children that day. And we're left asking, sometimes screaming at the top of our lungs, sometimes we just don't have the energy anymore. When is enough enough, God? When, when are we gonna get your attention? When is it gonna be so broken you respond? Or whether it's another war we can't make sense of. The Associated Press reporting over 12,000 children having been killed in Gaza since October. When is enough enough, God? Kids. Do you, do you even see the suffering? Are you looking? Do you hear the cries? Because we can hear them from the other side of the world. Do you, do you even care? Why don't you do anything? That's oftentimes our perception, isn't it? And yet what I need you to know is our perception is not always reality. We're not always the smartest person in the room. I heard a pastor one time say, I believe that you believe that, but that's not accurate. Because when we read this poem, within the context of the entirety, the whole of Scripture, you know what we see? We see that light at the end of this path. We see a glimpse of hope, a glimmer of hope, that God hasn't given up. He hasn't given up on you. He hasn't given up on us. And the church has got some skeletons in their closet that are coming out, but he hasn't given up on the church. He hasn't given up on humanity. He hasn't given up on his creation. Because what we know to be true and certain in Scripture, number one, is that God sees our suffering and he hears our cries. Amen? He sees, he hears. God said to Moses in Exodus 3, he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know, I intimately know their sufferings, and that is as true of us today as God's new covenant people as it was of Israel as his old covenant people. God sees and he hears. Number two, God grieves our suffering. You know, the shortest verse in the Bible is one of the best. Jesus wept. Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he wept, grieving the ravaging effects that sin has had on our world and the suffering it causes, including death. Jesus did not attend a celebration of life service for his friend, he attended a funeral where the Jewish people would pay people to cry, to wail for a week. God grieves our suffering. Number three, God is present with us in our suffering. Trick, God's present with you wherever you go. He's already there. Your ask is not, God, please be with me. It's, God, please give me a reminder that I know that you are already with me. Paul, he opens his letter to the Corinthians saying, that the Father of mercies, that the God of all comfort, that he comforts us in all our affliction. He is present with us. The Holy Spirit, God, in us, with us. And number four, here's the light at the end of the tunnel. God will bring an end to our suffering. Maybe not when we want, but he will. He will bring an end to our suffering when Christ returns, his second advent, when it says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Why? Because death will be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. 
all of those former things brought about by sin gone because sin has been eradicated. The poison has been sucked out. Creation, once again, renewed and very good. But we don't know when that day comes, do we? And so what do we do from this day until that day? How do we respond as the people of God? I think we respond the way the poet did. And that we do not turn our eyes away from the brokenness that exists in our world. We do not close our ears to the cries of those who are suffering. We need to see it and we need to hear it. I say that and at the same time, social media and 24 by 7 news has made it to where we can be absolutely inundated with the brokenness and suffering. And so hear me say, you taking a step back to take a break because it's too much, that's not closing your eyes. That's not closing your ears. That's just caring for yourself as you try and care for others. I'm talking about refusing to see and refusing to hear. Those are very different, aren't they? Folks, we need to be bothered by the brokenness or else we will never be bothered to lament the brokenness. And so in our time of guided reflection this morning, um, we're gonna, we're gonna sit and allow ourselves to be bothered. Bothered by the brokenness that exists in our own lives, brokenness that exists in the lives of those we love, brokenness that exists in our world. Taking our time of reflection first to reflect. Reflect on your own suffering, but also reflect on the suffering of others. Reflect on how all suffering is the result of sin. Some our own sin, but not all. Some the result of the sin of others committed against, and some just the mere presence of sin. We're going to reflect and we're going to repent. We're going to repent of our sin that brings about suffering. And we're going to repent of our apathy that causes us to turn our eye from the brokenness and refuse to look. That causes us to close our ears and refuse to hear the cries of others who are suffering. I'm going to give you a time of silence. I'm going to pray over us. And after I pray, the band, when they come up at that time and they begin to sing over us, I want to invite you to then respond, to lament, to cry out to God by writing what it is that you have reflected on, writing your repent, your cry on that note card that's on your seat. And when you're ready, I want you to bring that note card to one of these three stations and drop it in the basket, giving it to God knowing that God reads every cry that we will give him today. Respond and then receive. Receive the love and the grace of God through communion. Love that we know entered into the brokenness of our world. Love that did not wait for us to come to him, he came to us. Grace that forgives our sin not leaving us alone, not leaving us in our shame. Love that we remember and grace that we celebrate as we eat the bread 
Christ's body given to forgive us of our sin. And as we drink of the cup, Christ's blood shed to cleanse us of our shame. You can take the elements here, you can take them back to your seat. And then at that time, when you're ready, I want to invite you to stand as you're able and to sing with us. And we're going to sing to God. We are going to cry out to God, knowing that in our longing for the brokenness to be fixed, knowing that in the darkness that seems at times like it will never end, knowing, God, you are there. Amen? That you are love. It's not just something you do, it is who you are. And that you are altogether good. But first, let's reflect and let's repent. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.